Welcome to this bonus United Ireland podcast about imagining lockdown that I thought I'd share. It's Una here. First of all, thank you so much to our supporters and Patreon who've been helping myself and Andrea make podcasts. Go to patreon.com forward slash United Ireland and throw us three euro a month or more so that we can keep making United Ireland. If you can't afford to, that's totally fine. But if you like what we're doing, please spread the word on social media and recommend the podcast to your friends and family and neighbours and random strangers. A lot of people are struggling right now with health, with grief, with worry, with stress, with work, with space and with finances. And I keep hearing people talk about the new normal, which is a weird phrase that implies that there was an old normal. Normality is the preserve of the status quo. And wanting things to return to how they were implies that the old way suited you. For many people, for our capital and for our country, that is of course not the case practically, intellectually, philosophically, financially. Given the gravity of the pandemic, there's a tendency to forget that Ireland had upended itself politically at the ballot box this year, voting not just for some undefinable change, but for very specific change, the kind of change parties and politicians with left-wing ideas and ideals and ideologies and policies talk about, the kind of change that demonstrated an overwhelming dissatisfaction with the direction the country was going in and the neoliberal vortex years of austerity opened up. With so much of our daily lives and so much of our capital paused and closed, now is a good time to think about what happens on the other side of this, in this transitionary period that we're starting to conceptualise, even though so much of that feels very impractical and awkward. The lockdown exit. The economy will be in tatters and things will start to move quickly at a policy level. The last time, the last recession, the last crash, we know what happened to the capital. Large tracts of it were essentially sold off. Between the vulture funds, the REITs, the global property investment funds, crash-era Dublin was ripe for the picking. A depressed economy always presents opportunities for speculators and the cash-rich. We know the consequences of that were a crippling rental and housing crisis, and a boom in development that seemed at odds with what many who live and move to the capital want. In recent years, Dublin felt very distant to me. Entire blocks were being knocked to build shiny offices and what I feel are boring retail units. I was seeing a new wave of emigration of people unable to navigate the new financial obstacles in a so-called booming economy. The rental crisis was tormenting people, stretching them to breaking point financially, and effectively stalling people's personal and emotional progress by forcing them to live in places they didn't want to, to move back home, or still be sharing living quarters when what they really wanted to do was grow up independently. So the development of the city kind of felt like it was gaslighting me. The hotels were flying up, the city increasingly pivoted to one that primarily valued and facilitated tourists, Incredibly expensive luxury student accommodation was appearing, particularly across Dublin 8, Dublin 7 and Dublin 7 and Dublin 1. The landscape and skyscape was changing. Sometimes I would round a corner and stop, disoriented, as the physical markers of memory had been demolished. I began to recognise town less, a once familiar smile now filled with gaps in its teeth. When I articulated these thoughts, I sometimes felt the need to clarify 
that I'm not anti-progress or anti-change, obviously. Cities are living, evolving things. The change in newness is what makes them exciting. But these changes that were occurring didn't feel like windows to new portals we could all explore together. They felt like lock gates to which only a few had the passcode. I've been writing about the hypergentrification of Dublin for a long time, all throughout the decade just gone actually. It's sometimes hard to capture and balance my love for a city and my enthusiasm for people doing great things in it with also the overwhelming shadow that lurks across that, where the entities that are ultimately calling the shots don't care about the things that me and my friends care about. Dublin began to feel increasingly claustrophobic and I began to leave it with extended frequency for months at a time. It began to feel less like a place I felt I could thrive in and more like a base I happened to be from. And that's a very weird feeling to have about a town you know so well that you notice the smallest alterations, a new section of footpath paving, a temporary sign, never mind the whiplash of the accelerated pace of change in Dublin in recent years. The psychogeography, the wandering, the flaneuring, the art of being on the float was being impinged and infringed. At some point, it felt like every conversation I was having was about the oppressive, claustrophobic, negative things happening in the city. Everyone just saying Dublin's in bits. Town is dead. And also, I'm well aware that my version of Dublin is a point of view. It's a matter of taste. And it's also about getting older. The Dublin my parents hung out in in the 60s and 70s was obviously a vastly different city to the Dublin they existed in in the 80s and 90s and so on. But I also don't feel the need to overly qualify what I think is either interesting or detrimental to a city because I'm not saying everything needs to be what one cohort wants. What I was looking for from Dublin was not that all things bend to me and people like me but that there would at least be something left or something even better, something more to emerge beyond the glossy mundanity that the city seemed to prioritise. And then a while ago I started to consider the city in a different way. I started to think about habitat. In 2018 I travelled to Rwanda and Uganda for a week for work. The story um, I was assigned to write was about tracking mountain gorillas. Mountain gorillas live in two places. In montane forests across the Virunga range Um, a group of extinct volcanic mountains in the Democratic Republic of Congo and Rwanda and in the Bwindi impenetrable forest in Uganda. The gorillas you see in a zoo are lowland gorillas. Mountain gorillas cannot survive in captivity. The census numbers vary but there are around 800 to 1000 mountain gorillas left in the world. If you think that sounds terrifyingly low, it is. But in 1981 the population stood at 242. To find these gorillas, I would be hiking at about 8,000 feet above sea level. To put that in context, Ireland's highest mountain, Karen Thuhal, one which Andrea knows well from her facts, is 3,400 feet. Africa has five ecosystems broadly on the continent. Coastal, desert, savanna grassland, forest and mountain environments. And for over a century, the montane forests in these mountain environments have been chipped away at by humans you can see the farmland creeping up mountain sides. When I started off on one hike, I noticed um, this notice board in the base station area. And it's one of those maps that you might see at the entrance of any forest or national park anywhere. 
you know, with um, like a not very detailed map of the area and like cartoonish pictures of wildlife. It was old and faded. But what it detailed was the importance of these forests, these mountain forests and cloud forests in these mountain environments. At one point, before farmland encroached on the area, before gorillas were being poached, before civil wars and slashing and burning trees, the mountain gorillas had a much larger habitat to wander around. But bear in mind, these animals live at very high altitude. So the habitat is very specific and it's very precarious. Break off one bridge of habitat, one pathway to another area, and they're stuck. And one of the things habitat loss does is that it fragments the forest and the mountain gorillas become isolated from each other and they become isolated from other groups and inbreeding inevitably happens, creating a reduction in genetic diversity and a homogeny that is very damaging to their existence. Cutting into their habitat left the mountain gorillas isolated to the point that in a strange way, the habitat they were left with became their own desert islands in the mist and rain. Now, if you're in another part of the massive continent of Africa, how are you going to notice that? Those forests are far away and up there. They're holding these entire like life forces together, but you don't know that. If you're down on the savannah, it's like, look at all these zebras, look at these elephants, this is all brill. Or if you're in the desert, it's like, check out all these scorpions, everything's awesome. But meanwhile, the mountain gorillas are high up going, man, all we want are little like forest avenues and bridges from A, B, from A to B to C so we can hang out and do our thing and thrive. When we start to conceptualise the environments within which we live as habitat, it allows us to delve into the complexity of what's at work within such ecosystems. When we talk about habitat, we're talking about a closely woven complex ecosystem within which multiple things rely, relate, benefit from and bounce off each other. When you break parts of those ecosystems, both a confinement and an isolation begins to happen. Yet people elsewhere in another ecosystem, within the broader ecosystem, probably have no idea how cut off their neighbours are feeling. This is not just ecological gentrification, it's ecological destruction, obviously. But it kind of chimed with me. It spoke to something deeper. And I understand the irony of describing cities as habitat when urbanisation actually destroys habitat. But for humans, cities are as diverse as any rainforest or savanna, or at least they should be, until bits of them become chipped away and the relationships start to break. What I was seeing unfold in Dublin in recent years was kind of like the impact of that boring farmland creeping up the exciting, mysterious mountainside forest. At first glance, both kind of look homogenous, a field and a forest. But the forest had a reveal you knew something else was going on in there, much more than what was very obviously just a field with planted crops beside it. If we conceive of where we live as a habitat, right, as an ecosystem, then we begin to grasp better the interdependency of all of the moving parts. Sometimes people ask me for ideas about enriching the cultural fabric of the city. And my first suggestion is always to do everything they can to fight for, get and implement affordable rents and rent control. The fundamentals of the ecosystem have to work. In order for people to create something in a place and for a place, they have to be able to live there. So sure, you know, you could plonk some new artist building 
limited in the middle of a city, but it's probably far better to give and create an ecosystem where an artist can live in a liberated way and give them the opportunities and the access points to figure out things organically and build and organize things to their liking. During the Celtic Tiger, for example, there were plenty of arts facilities built around the country. But without the surrounding ecosystems, some of them ended up being a little devoid of life. And you know the feeling of a building or a block being full of life. You can feel it in the same way that you can feel it without life. Or you can feel if something is real and buzzing or if something is inauthentic or a gimmick or just kind of dead. It's about people creating a community around something and the collective and individual creativity that keeps contributing to that unseen structure made up of relationships and ideas and conversations and recognition. You know when you go to a city you've never travelled to before and you hear about like some cool market area or something and you go there and you realise that sure this was probably real once upon a time, maybe not even that long ago. But now it's been co-opted and become contrived and serves an attraction for tourists, which you are, rather than a real experience. And you know tourists love real experiences and are so successful at rooting them out that the initial authentic experience has no choice but to pivot towards something like a tourist attraction because that's where the demand is. And that's another reason that I was getting freaked out about how Dublin was forming. It's why I get freaked out by... Things like Dublin City Council saying they're going to build a market from scratch as an attraction for tourists in what was and is the old market area of Dublin between Capel Street and Smithfield. Well, the old fruit and flower market anyway. It's like the markets are already there. Why don't you work with them to bleed out onto the street a little more instead of building or conceiving of what are essentially film sets in the great cinema of tourism where there is just audience and actors. Or hey... Why are you talking about some grand plan for markets when the Dublin flea existed in the city and had its habitat destroyed? There's this book I read a long time ago called Emergence by a guy called Stephen Johnson. Emergence is about how lots of things come from the bottom up to create complex systems rather than the top down and how you can really feel the difference. He talks about cities, ant colonies, software... I often think about those theories of feedback, adaptive learning, self-organising, how something begins quite simply, yet its existence becomes participation until it's part of a much more complex system. And then I think about how sterile things often seem when they're built from the top down or imposed. You have to let things be free, be messy, so that they can emerge. Facilitating young artists in a city, for example, isn't as simple as fudging some bullshit on a planning application to say that a development will have a cultural component. Offer them cheap rent, give them access to random spaces, and I bet far more interesting things will emerge than something you just ticked a box on. In recent years, I've been encountering a Dublin that feels quite top-down, that is sanitised, that loves order and hates disorder. Creating things that look orderly actually suppresses the real order that looks beneath them sometimes, that others may not be familiar with and can often view as chaos or unwieldy or even dangerous. In a brilliant book by Sarah Shulman, The Gentrification of the Mind, Witness of a Lost Imagination, she wrote, and I quote, There is something inherently stupid about gentrified thinking. It's a dumbing down and a smoothing over of what people are actually like. 
It's a social position rooted in received wisdom, with aesthetics blindly selected from the pre-sorted offerings of marketing and without information or awareness about the structures that create its own delusional sense of infallibility. Gentrified thinking is like the bourgeois version of Christian fundamentalism, a huge unconscious conspiracy of homogenous patterns with no awareness about its own freakishness. The gentrification mentality is rooted in the belief that obedience to consumer identity over recognition of lived experience is actually normal, neutral and value-free. End quote. You should all read that book, by the way. And there are some parts of Dublin that I really, you know, that evoke this kind of stuff that Sarah Shulman talks about. They're the kind of parts that I can almost hear the life hiss out of them when I walk in or through or by Sometimes you can't actually hear this. The wind tunnels between poorly designed apartment blocks that impose a frosty shade on the street or the suction of fire doors or the vacuous caverns of cookie cutter restaurants and bars. The pandemic will be blamed for the decimation of a lot of stuff. And some of that stuff was already failing in Dublin. A long time ago, we handed our high streets over to British, European and American chains some of whom have been struggling immensely in the great high street apocalypse where online shopping has decimated the need for walking into yet another glass box to buy yet more of the same interchangeable fast fashion you can get anywhere. Many newish restaurants and bars, all with kind of similar design motifs geared towards Instagram, have been struggling. Many business owners thought they could pull in crowds with expensive refurbs, which is, I guess, easier to do than actually building an organic community and creating a real vibe, especially if you don't know how to do that. A lot of people slag me off for placing so much emphasis on the importance of the Bernard Shaw closing. What people aren't seeing, though, is what that represented. That was the kind of habitat that allows for messiness and the unquantifiable value of community. When these things were going the clubs, the rough and ready bars, they weren't being replaced with an equivalent part of that habitat. Instead, we got the farmland, the Ivy and WeWork and Leon and yet another press-up outlet. The suburbanisation of Dublin City was profound. Being in Dublin began to feel a little like that Chemical Brothers music video, Star Guitar. The same patterns repeated over and over again. And that same feeling of homogeny you get walking around central London or midtown Manhattan. Jane Jacobs once wrote, the ballet of the good city sidewalk never repeats itself from place to place. In recent years in Dublin, I kind of felt like we were being denied that jazz of improvisation and diversity and the element of surprise that is so fundamental to a city's habitat. And with this homogeny, a creative ecosystem was crumbling and those who value ideas and fun and creativity over profit were being isolated in their own islands. A pre-pandemic self-isolation was occurring, with many people priced out of bars and restaurants, and with clubs so rare that we were already staying in our houses, the session becoming a valuable outpost, but one that was increasingly detaching us further from what was going on outside. One of the things that the pandemic is reinforcing, obviously, is the importance of community. It's also probably making us think about the things we yearn for and the places we want to go back to. I have to say, you know, to be totally honest, I've struggled 
to come up with loads and loads of places in Dublin I want to go back to. So I've had to start thinking, how can we make them? (laughs) What kind of capital city do we want on the other side of this? And how can we bring about what we imagine to be a Dublin utopia for a vast array of people instead of a city that was increasingly geared towards one broad suburban tourist demographic? We need to resist the type of corporate urban development that is thought up by marketeers, advertisers and uninspiring developers often shrouded in the mangled tech-type language that has become as nebulous as it is impenetrable and ubiquitous. One factor that's going to be a bizarre obstacle coming out of lockdown gradually, whenever that is, is how social distancing is not just, or physical distancing rather, is not just going to be, is just not going to be practical for a lot of restaurants, cafes, bars and so on, not to mention cultural spaces. These hypotheticals of, you know, just have tables two metres away are nonsense in practical terms. It's not even a space thing. It's how on earth a business can be viable in Dublin operating at at 30 or 40% capacity when businesses here are compelled to run at absolute capacity to turn a profit. There are also issues around the economic pressures of rents, rates, staffing, insurance, leases, VAT and everything else. For some reason, Dublin is just not like other European cities where you can have your little bar that kind of ticks along. Those kinds of things don't survive in Dublin. So we need to create a city where they do. There's something wrong if you have to be at full throttle to make a living. Another massive factor we're going to have to contend with is that Ireland has always navigated economic turmoil by utilising the pressure valve of large-scale emigration. That's not going to be available to us in the short term. So how do we rebuild with everyone still here? This will be a global recession and add to that the inevitable travel restrictions. There just won't be hundreds of thousands of people leaving Ireland for other countries immediately. This is exciting in a way. It's also going to put our welfare system under huge pressure. So how do we lower the cost of entry to executing an idea? The beauty of a city is in the mess. It's in the scrappiness and the diversity It's that thing where like so much stuff is fizzing and interacting. They collectively come up with something cool. This is not about moulding a city in my vision or the vision of people like me. It's about having multiple parts so everyone has their bit. I'm not interested, for example, in the straight clubs of Harcourt Street. But that doesn't mean I don't want them to exist and for people to have an absolute ball in them. Of course I do. I'm not particularly interested in the aesthetic of the IFSC. But that doesn't mean I don't think it has a place in a city. But why can't there be other stuff too? Why can't there be the raves and the warehouse clubs and the basements and the squats? And not just in tiny, sporadic numbers. Surely there's room for everybody. Jane Jacobs also wrote, Cities have the capability of providing something for everybody. Only because, and only when, they are created by everybody. How does this work in practical terms? Well, we have to start imagining. We can't go anywhere right now for the most part. So take this time to think. What do you want out of Dublin? And how can you get that? How can we build the forums where the feelings and desires and requirements and ambition and ideas for the city and its multitude of people aren't ignored? How can we become more engaged with local and national government? How can we become aware 
of the disaster capitalists who will want to swoop in. How do we resist that? How can we build an urban movement with the intention of creating a city we don't want to leave? Do we want a city that looks like a glass and steel digital rendering in some gobshites presentation that makes places in the city with real character look like a series of concession stands in Terminal 2 and where a creative or cultural component of a development boils down to the lamest of afterthoughts? Do we want the type of interchangeable gimmickry for tourists that is crushingly familiar in other cities that have already slid down the rabbit hole of Hudson Yards homogeny? Do we want the ripped off visions where every pub in town looks like someone searching the Soho House inspo tag on Pinterest? Do we want theme bars or real bars? Do we want attractions or culture? Do we want a sanitised city over a dirty old town? I think it's important to say that what Dublin needs is something for everyone, not one thing for some. It's not about freezing the city in time. It's about going in a better direction. It's about encouraging diversity, all kinds of diversity, of thought, of people, of places, of venues, shops, spaces, price points. It's about choice and it's about inclusion. It's also not about preserving some mythical romantic notion or origin story. That's all bullshit. It's about recognising that value is not just monetary. It's about soul, new soul, old soul. It's about character. And character isn't just about ye olde pub. It's about shit that's interesting and it's about a vibe. I kind of called bullshit on the direction Dublin was going in. It depressed me. I felt like I was watching someone else's city be built on sims behind plexiglass. Someone with really bad taste. Who wanted to helicopter in boring shit they saw in other places and transport it with no context into our deadly little capital. Dublin was burnt out. It was kind of fucked. The homelessness crisis was fucked. The rental crisis was fucked. The destruction of cultural and creative venues was fucked. People who got through the the recession having to emigrate was fucked. The price of everything was fucked. Co-living was fucked. Luxury student accommodation was fucked. Airbnb sucking up gaffes was fucked. Planning decisions were fucked. The inequity between tech and everything else was fucked. Artists being squeezed out was fucked. Licensing hours were fucked. Hotel building was fucked. Handing over public land to private developers was fucked. The mental health crisis of artists was fucked and everyone else. The hamster wheel so many people were on was fucked. The frustration of those with the deepest pockets getting to call the shots despite their ideas being crap was fucked. The continued takeover of terrible chains was fucked. The homogenisation was fucked. The lack of edge was fucked. Within all this fuckery, there were people doing amazing things. People doing super interesting things. It was making me feel optimistic about the city again. People striving to create and succeeding against the odds. The art that was coming out of this moment just before now, the nights out, the sessions, the ideas, the plays, the poems, the tunes, the parties, it was happening. There's a reason people don't really talk about the last recession that much in terms of our experiences within it, I think. Because it was, by and large, extraordinarily grim. And the vast majority of us experienced that grimness. So it makes sense not to want to revisit it or dwell on it. And there's also a massive privilege and guilt to remembering certain things fondly. It's like because so many people were suffering, there was no space to say, yeah, I know that fell apart, but weren't these things cool too? Things can be incredibly difficult and instructive at the same time. During the last recession, interesting things happened and a lot of them faded away. For some, Dublin being back in business in recent years was great. 
For others, it destroyed their temporary ecosystem that fed them creatively and spiritually and should have been made more permanent. Because a city needs its underground and it needs its edge. Last time, that time, I don't think we had the knowledge to realise how valuable those little sparks were and how they should have been protected. We lacked the tools and vocabulary to stop the steamrolling. But we know now how much more interesting Dublin would have been over the last few years had some of those things been preserved. A city's underbelly is where its creative fuel resides and the recession certainly had a massive underbelly. The raves and the squats and the after-hours spots and the pop-up ventures and the fuck-it-all-have-a-go ideas and the parties and the desperation of losing your job but knowing deep down that there was also liberation in some of that loss. The club nights and the communities huddling even closer to fill up those gaps Emma Curran called the holes on the dance floor. Could it be that another financial collapse could provide us with the space within the cracks to grow something interesting again and keep it this time? Could it be that having seen what emerged in the fissures of an economically broken city a decade ago, that we'll have learned how not to let those things go? In the recession, movements were built to transform Ireland forever. These were the things we fought for. So what do we fight for now? The answer, I guess, is whatever we think up. It's whatever we imagine. But we have to be ready to put our imagination into action and to not be hoodwinked by the corporate capitalism shrouded in nonsense and the marketing pitches for fake communities and fake aspirations and fake planning and fake housing and fake jobs. That is also what's fucked. So it's time to imagine something else. So let's start imagining this Dublin utopia.